Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. We'll be in the book of James one last time. Two verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through, excuse me, 19 through 20. Oh, I need to brag on you, to you. Our dear sister Carolyn Forbes passed away this past week. You know that. And you loved her well, and she probably loved you better. Um, it was said at the funeral yesterday that when she retired from her job as a secretary many years ago, they had to hire three to replace her. Um, may well have been true. I only say may well because that's what her son said. It, sometimes there's legends, but you get the idea. She was industrious and busy and faithful, and she was that way around here, picking up and driving her friends around town. She was the ride for some to church, one we're looking for for a ride to church now. Um, would you step into her shoes? She's a great pace setter. And, uh, and don't just be busy like she was, be happy like she was. That lady had great joy and contentment in the Lord, and we will remember her as we did yesterday. Praise God for Carolyn Forbes. I say I have to brag on you to you because the family wanted me to. You tell your people how good they were to her in these days in the hospital. Several elders at her side across the week. Um, many members writing cards were all read to her. Know that those cards were read to her. You do a great job caring for each other as you did for her. And let's pick up where she left off. Well, we are now at the end of the book of James. We've been in James for some 20 sermons since the beginning of the fall season last year. And I'm always sad to see these journeys end because uh, with you, I've been in the book uh, week in and week out, but uh, kind of my full-time job to be in the book. So maybe a little different than you. I'm, I'm attached to James, but I've gotten used to letting go. And uh, we've got something else coming um, I'll tell you about our next series, which will be about four or five sermons long. I'll tell you about that next week, and then we'll have a good long series after that that might take us a year, year and a half. I'll tell you about that in a number of weeks. You're going to have to hold on. Um, next week, Dan Kruver will be preaching for us, so I'm grateful that he's going to preach. It will give me some space to run ahead and make sure that we're all situated for our new series. Well, let's read now the final two verses in the book of James. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's short word for us this morning. Well, what do we do when a brother or a sister wanders from the truth? James is taking after his brother, and he's done that so well. He's listened well to Jesus, his brother in the flesh. He's listened well to Jesus, as we've said through this book. There's no part of the Sermon on the Mount that is not represented in this book. And there's no part of this book that is not truly an application of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So Christian friend and member and future preachers, if there are any in the room, there are a few. Um, let's take our cue from James as to how he shepherds his church on the basis of the word. 
takes after his brother. He takes after his brother in going after sheep. Uh, that's what this letter is. It's, it's James going after sheep. It's James writing to churches to go after their members when they, when they stray. Characteristically, James's letter ends abruptly. Uh, it's characteristically abrupt, abrupt. According to James's character and nature, as we have learned, uh, Jesus, excuse me, uh, the Apostle Paul's letters, and pretty much any letter any normal person would write, uh, have a predictable ending, a closing greeting. In the first century, almost all, if not all, of our New Testament letters, letters end with a, a parting greeting and a benediction. And they, end, they begin kind of like James's letter began with a personal greeting. Uh, but if I hadn't told you this was the last sermon in the series, you'd just think it was another two verses. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And his letter is over. Do you hear the abruptness? Some take that as just more proof that James is random. Well, he is not random, and we've been over that. I take it that James's abrupt ending is just a matter of style consistent with his book. He doesn't always tell you what he's doing. He just does it. You know, there's a way to preach a sermon without saying point one, point two, point three. There's a way to preach a faithful sermon without putting a screen up over us to give you headers so you can always mentally jump back in if you've skated off. There's a way to preach a sermon without exceptionally pronounced transitions that nevertheless moves the hearer from one thing to another, from one point to another. In movies, you don't have a screen that, shows, that pops up and says, now this will happen. Now so-and-so enters the room. Now this theme is developing. Act one, act two with titles. That would be super annoying, actually. And sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't strip all this stuff away. We like the screens. But we're minimal about it. See, James doesn't give us all his headers. Uh, the, the editors of your, your translation might have put little headers in there. The publisher may have. But James doesn't do that. He just does what he's doing. And it's having its effect. And what effect would it have to end a letter like this? But to reveal his point in writing. I don't think it's proof that James is random. Just one more little topic, a little fortune cookie before I land my letter and then, and then gone. Because it does hold out a great encouragement there. Let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It wasn't just one more thing he meant to get in. No, I think that this, this reveals uh, in sharpest measure his purpose in writing. I think it's a purpose statement. If you read through letters, listen for purpose statements. And by placement, where this lands, I think that that's how this little two lines is functioning for us. Characteristically abrupt. He's also characteristically balanced. Uh, notice here, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, well, well that is at the same time ominous, and he says he'll save them their soul from death. Brings, brings back a sinner. He's using all these terribly discouraging words. 
Uh, James is famously terse and direct and plain. Can we be that way with each other? Oh, we must. Be gracious, season it with salt. But we can be James. We can do James. But it's not just ominous, it's optimistic. And bring someone back. See, that's good. See, you were focusing on wandering in sin and death. But, but the balance here is on what James hopes for in writing. He wouldn't have written his letter if some would not be brought back from death. If some of us could not actually go after others and bring them back and save them from death. Spiritual death. Apostasy. Leaving God altogether. Uh, He's balanced in this way. He's balanced in that he holds out a responsibility. Someone needs to go get them and bring them back. But he doesn't just say, you had better do this, or it's the responsibility of somebody to go get about it. Uh, He holds it out as a privilege that anyone really ought to want. Uh, Whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Um, He's telling us what's in What's going on? The result that we get to be a part of. I think he ends on a note of encouragement, actually. Even as there's a stark warning embedded in the passage. There's the balance of the individual and the congregational. He began his letter talking to us, a church, but concerning each of us before God. And he's landed the letter speaking to the congregation about the sinner out there who wanders away from the church and from Christ. And he began by speaking of how we each ought to pray to God and each of us is tempted by our own sin. And he ends with three times in the last paragraph or so, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone, he ends on this theme of reconciliation. He's, he's landing his book by helping us know how to bring each other back and how to welcome each other back when we come, when we win each other back to Jesus. He's abrupt and he's, he's balanced. And I take it just on reading these two verses that some of us in this room will wander from the truth and any of us here can bring that sinner back. Some of us here in this room will wander from the truth and any of us here can bring that sinner back. A sobering thought and a greatly encouraging thought. I say some of us because it seems to be a given for James. If anyone among you, there's an if there, but he has not written his letter as though this happens every hundred years. And And you know, don't you? Maybe you're back and you were gone. But the Lord brought you back with the help of a brother or sister or some other means. Uh, Or a close friend has wandered away and never came back. Maybe someone comes to mind right now. I'm going to focus our attention on those who are wandering away. Maybe someone comes to mind. Can you hold their name as you listen to this sermon for the next 40 minutes or so? A professing believer, dating an unbeliever, 
a professing believer flirting with some of the uh, captivating and idolatrous false ideologies of our day regarding gender or marriage or any next thing. They're trying to make Christianity fit with it. Maybe it's just someone who's not, not showing up around here very much anymore. Or lost in the work. Or lost in their family. Maybe lost in themselves and their own, their own grief or guilt. But they're just not around. And scripture says that we must come around. We must gather. We must not forsake the gathering. So hold their name. As we, as we enter this sermon. And I say, hold their name, and you're thinking, well, shouldn't I worry about me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But see, James is talking to the church about those who are wandering. So that's how we'll frame and approach our time together. Well, how do we know when someone is wandering, and how do we go about bringing them back? Those are the two questions that we ought to spend our time on this morning, and those are the two questions that will guide our time in the Word. How do we know when someone is wandering? Well, we should start an answer to that question with the question, wander from what? And of course, it's wandering from the truth. He says as much. If anyone among you, verse 19, wanders from the truth. Um, It's not in the first place wandering from church. You can't really separate them. But I want to highlight a matter of truth here. We have been brought forth by the word of truth. We go forth in the Christian life by the truth with meekness receiving the word, as James said. A departure from the church may be sickness or it may be weakness spiritually that could lead them away from the truth. But the great danger is in the first place not a wandering from a local church exactly. But the danger in that is the local church is where the truth is proclaimed and received and spoken and where we are called to it. This is a wandering from the truth. It's nice to know there is truth, by the way, in such a liquid world. The church is a place where we say there is a such thing as truth outside ourselves. It's not relative to the person, and it actually exists. It's not malleable. The spirit of our age would say there is no such thing as truth, and that that silly thought is being pressed all the way into its dangerous ends so that we presume to change anything about us. I don't reference these to be hard on our neighbors. I'm saying we're in danger of losing our own minds on this thing, of saying there is no such thing as truth. But this whole project of Christianity in the church and being saved from our guilt and death begins with a confession that there is truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So don't be ashamed of truth. And when you hesitate to say something in one setting or another that's patently true, but you hesitate because of the social costs of doing so, just take note. I can't tell you whether that's the time to open your mouth, but just take note that hesitation is an evidence of the air that we are breathing. Saying obvious things is getting harder 
and harder. There is a such thing as truth. We hold to that truth, and the heart of that truth is the truth about God and sinners that we confess and that we've learned about in this book. There are also stakes for this truth. We're brought forth by the word of truth. We go on as those who receive with meekness the word of truth, which is able to save your souls apart from truth. There's no salvation for your soul. So we don't want to miss this little word here, truth. It's there. It's there on purpose as it's appeared several times in our our book. Well, given the nature of truth, that helps us when we think about the nature of wandering because wandering is a wandering from truth. It involves self-deception and so we must be discerning for a wanderer may not tell us that they're wandering. Hey, just heads up, I'm wandering. It doesn't go like that typically. Now they may, only verses earlier, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its, its working. It, remember that we took that last section there where someone laid up sick calls on the elders and you've got this mingling of salvation language and physical healing, really strange, but we take it that the Lord has laid this person up physically in order to get their attention to face them to heaven so they might think of their soul and then think of the church they've been cruelly speaking against and dividing and then call the elders and then speak to their brothers and sisters about their sins against their church family. And be forgiven and received and reconciled. So sometimes that happens. James is assuming it and he's giving direction for when that happens. But it can be hard to tell at first. And just like a seed goes into the ground and takes time to grow, we're brought forth by the word of truth. That's the the imagery that James is using there. It comes from uh, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament that speaks of agricultural growth in the kingdom. And like an implanted word inside us, he says, the word grows. Well, so too wandering can be a slow thing to see. We don't need to assume a brother or sister is so far gone when we detect some straying in the heart. Um, But we can tend to each other. You know, don't just have one instrument, one way of speaking with each other. But there are telltale signs. Uh, This word here, uh, wander, let's talk about this for a moment. It's the same word used in the first chapter for deceit. So verse 16 of chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And every good and perfect gift, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's gathering up his gains from his work in the first chapter, and he he says, don't be deceived about the nature of God and about temptation, which he gets to in that section. Uh, Same word used here for wandering at the end. This is why I say I think this matter of wandering represents a pervasive concern Wandering is a matter of being led astray. It's a matter of of being deceived. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. That would be wrong. You'd be deceived in saying that. God can't be tempted with evil. He tempts no one. Each person, here's the truth, is tempted when he's lured and enticed, deceived by his own desire. 
See, this matter of deception pervades, pervades the book. If anyone thinks he's religious and he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. See, deception pervades, pervades the book. But this word for, for wandering, planato, is the same word at that very time the book was written was used for the planets in the sky. You look up at the night stars and you didn't have city light washing it all out and you'd see stars that moved together through the sky, through the night and then you had these other shining lights that would do something, <laughs> that would do something else. Those were called wanderers, planets, planato, don't be deceived. They were straying. It was a way of describing the wandering, professing Christian. They're like the planets in the sky. They're not steadfast. They're not stable. Those are the words that James has been using for us. And there are telltale signs. You can see the planets and you can see straying. So let me, by way of summary of really much of the book, give you three Three of those telltale signs. A divided tongue. Of course, you remember James chapter 3. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. The tongue itself speaking cruelly against the people of God and at the same time saying all the right things on the Lord's day. <laughs> and, and a divided tongue, not only divided in what it's saying, but a, a tongue that divides the people of God. For how often has James addressed us concerning quarreling and evil thoughts and speech and the spark of our tongue causing a whole fire that would burn a church to the ground a tongue that divides. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you don't receive because you ask wrongly in your heart to spend it on your passions. So what explains all this division and fight and trouble in your church, he's saying, well, is it not your passions at war within you? You have a division within your own soul that is leading to divisions among the people. And I've said to you a couple times, I don't think this is our diagnosis at the moment as a church, but please, brothers and sisters, know how a church stays healthy. It can keep the same doctrine and leave that doctrine by the way that we speak about each other and the thoughts that we think in our own hearts. A divided and a dividing tongue. Or how about double vision? How we see one another. He addressed the matter of, of partiality in the first chapter. How we treat the poor. Not favoring the rich. In the context in which James was, uh, the rich had great social clout and control over how things go for you. And so one would walk in the door and you wanted to be on the right side of that guy. 
Give him a good seat. Make sure he has a really good morning. In the broader culture, the community surrounding the churches, were harsh and hard on Christians. And Christians were having all kinds of trouble figuring out which way was up and how to move forward together. As the pressure was on them, they put pressure on each other. And some would cozy up to those who could help them out. Maybe if we're nice to that man when he walks in church, he won't be cruel to me in the court of law and take my property. May well have been that there were some Christians in the church who were especially wealthy, who are participating in those schemes, rigging legal processes in order to take property from poorer Christians. People were losing their jobs and their livelihood and their property. It was a bad time. And Christians all over the world, brothers and sisters, are in similar straits right now. And as we've said, we always could be in smaller or greater ways. The partiality, though, we're all made in the image of God. We come to God the same way. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of grass, he'll pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and beauty perishes, so will the rich fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Well, he said that right after he said, pray for wisdom to understand how God is at work in your trials. The reason he says this about the lowly brother and the rich is because God's answer to that prayer is to give us a clear vision as to our own place before him. And if you're a lowly brother or sister, humanly speaking, in our room this morning, oh, boast in your exaltation in Jesus. And if you're especially wealthy and things have gone well for you, and that's very good and commendable and for many commendable reasons, boast in your humiliation because you'll bring none of that into heaven and you won't meet God and be safe on account of all of your wealth and things. Well, you get the point. But a divided and dividing tongue is a sign of a straying heart. And double vision, seeing yourself wrong, Boasting in pride about yourself. Caring less for others who are lower than yourself in earthly terms. And showing special favor to those who can help you out. Valuing people according to the world's measurements of value. You can apply that another step or two down as you like. But those are two of the broad categories that we can use. Lenses to see if we can discern a wandering soul. And there's another one. I'll call it selective hearing. Hearers only and not doers of the word. Um, Someone needs a cup of water and you say, uh, go in peace, the Lord is is with you. See, you want to sound like you've got it together. You want to sound godly. You're projecting one thing with words. So you've been listening just enough to know what being a faithful Christian sounds like in the counseling room, around the coffee table in a friend's home, in the halls on Sunday. Let's not be fakers. Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And to do nothing for someone in need. The big point here isn't 
every Christian is doing everything they could for every poor person within 100 miles. The sharp point here is the inconsistency of the outside and the inside of the person. A divided tongue, double vision, selective hearing. You hear some of the word, you walk away and forget it. Because you're only interested in what is seen by, by others. Well, that's a sign of a wandering heart. See, it's like the, it's like the inmate who has left a, a fake body under the covers. They look like they're there when the guard walks by. Oh, but they're long gone. And some of you are here in body, but not in soul. You've wandered away in your heart. And I hope and pray we've caught you in time. Let us get you. Let us get you. We're glad that you are here. Divided tongue, double vision, selective hearing. Note here that the concern is for those wandering away from the truth, but those three departments aren't doctrinal exactly. They're ethical. They're downstream from doctrine. Now, if you opened up the book of Galatians, you'd find the Apostle Paul speaking starkly and with great uh, energy and seriousness to a church that was leaving the gospel. And he's saying, let him be accursed who preaches another gospel. This is a different problem that these churches have. And isn't it often the case? I have seen it many times. Someone starts asking kind of pesky questions about God or a doctrine that they've never asked about before. And it's not like they're having some theological awakening now. They've heard it a hundred times. Poke a little bit and you find out for some time now they've been lost in a wash in pornography. We're being pursued. The algorithms are dialed in. The billboards aren't just out there, they're on the screens. It's a dangerous age. Be on watch for your soul. If you let yourself wander too far, oh, you'll get around to the doctrinal questions. And sometimes by the time those questions are coming out, it's like picking a lock. How can I get out of here? How can I get out of here and sound like I'm spiritual, sound intellectual? Because that's always better than I just wanted to be with my coworker. These are doctrinal concerns, but in the first place, ethical concerns. The ethical departures have led them away. In some ways, everyday biting and snipping and cruel speech in the church can lead you all the way to hell. Is James just concerned about behavior? Certainly not. As I have quoted several times, he speaks about truth. He speaks about faith and works. A faith that is accompanied by works, is completed by works, is filled up by works, and animated by, by works. But faith nevertheless, you can't be saved apart from grace through faith in the Lord Jesus who takes all of our sins away. That's not how Peter is saying, excuse me, James is saying we get saved. Uh, we're brought forth by the word of truth. God's Spirit, who inspired the Word, brings us forth, gives us new life in the truth of Jesus, who died for us and rose for us to give us that new life. 
But that community of truth walks in it together. There's an ethical and doctrinal dimension here. How do we know when someone is wandering? Well, those are three broad categories, lenses with which to look at your own self and to look at your brothers and sisters. Second question, how do we go about bringing them back? How do we bring a wanderer back? It's not always the case that they come back. That needs to get said. So even in our passage here, um, the one who brings back a sinner from wandering saves his soul from death. So that's very encouraging. But it implies that doesn't always happen. Be encouraged, they can come back and often do come back. Someone can bring them back. Even you can be the agent of their, their returning. But some don't. And this itself is the consistent teaching of the New Testament on this point. The book of Hebrews warns us concerning falling away from the living God. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of things. Sin, he's saying the same thing as, as James. Uh, the Apostle Paul in his letters, his pastoral letters, he's speaking to pastors and he says, certain persons swerving from the truth have wandered away. Some widows have strayed after Satan. For the love of money, some have wandered away from the faith. Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. Paul's saying the same thing. And in the book of Revelation, we've the seven churches and, and no one gets gets. To God on the other side of death, apart from conquering, Jesus says he'll take the lampstand away from a church that abandons her first, her first love. Well, how does all this work? Can you lose your salvation? Well, it sure can look like it. How does this work theologically? John helps us out. 1 John 2.19. It's a, it's, a, it's a passage to bookmark. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The point is, there is a time when you're here, we're here, and they were of us and among us and walked with us and then went out from us and wandered away and kept going and didn't come back. And John's saying, here's how that works. Just because of the possibility of someone leaving off doesn't mean you treat everyone like an unbeliever. But once they have left off and proven that they are, as Jesus said can happen, then they went out, we would say, with John, that it might become plain that they are not of us. So sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't. And we do have to be ready for both, both outcomes. Seven answers to this question. How can we bring a wanderer back? I could have condensed them to three or four, but how about seven? I don't do long lists for you very often. Some of you probably like longer lists. Maybe, maybe I'll do some longer lists for you, but at least, at least for right now, I dragged my net across the book of James this week and came up with these. And some of them are methods, what to do. Some are postures or, or manners with which to go about the work of pursuing a brother 
or a sister in the first place, we go after them with a clear sense, a clear sense of the goal. Remember how James began, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, and here it is, complete, lacking, and nothing. He's addressed the problem of double-mindedness and double-souled, he'd called it. You're speaking out of two sides of your mouth. Your divisions between you are because of divisions within you. And he's holding out the goal of spiritual wholeness, human wholeness, that your outside would match your inside and no faking. A sincere faith, Paul calls it. Go get the wanderer with a clear sense of the goal, spiritual wholeness. But even more than wholeness of the person that leads to wholeness in the church, all of this is itself grounded in a oneness and a wholeness with God. Turn with me to chapter 4. I want to show you something briefly. And we'll skip through these points just so you know our pace. At chapter 4, he begins, what causes quarrels and fights among you? There's the division. Is it not your passions at war within you? There's a division within your own soul. Now verse 4, you adulterous people. Oh wait, between who? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Oh, and there it is. You see, the division in your own soul is owing to a division between you and the Lord. Friendship with the world. Enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world is an enemy of God. Now, Jesus said this in his Sermon on the Mount. You can't have two masters. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? The Lord is jealous for you like a husband for a bride? So it's not just about your self-improvement. That would be the wrong way to read the beginning of James, here at the middle of the letter, when he pulls out the stops and calls us adulterous people, he's actually jealous for our union with the Lord and our fellowship with the Lord and our fidelity to the Lord for the purpose of fellowship with him. Because God yearns jealously over us. So hear that harsh language as loving language. It's our God in hot pursuit in James and hot pursuit of us as we should be in hot pursuit of each other for God's sake and the sake of the sinner. Go with a clear sense of the goal. Go with a word of truth. A word of truth concerning sin that temptation begins in each of us. God does not tempt us. Neither is he tempted by sin, but it begins in each of our own hearts as we're lured in a way and enticed by our own desires. And that, once conceived, gives forth to death. Oh, and a pregnancy is meant to, be, to signal life. And what a horrifying image. Now he's saying sin is conceived and grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it brings forth death. So don't be deceived. We bring to our friends a word of truth concerning God and sin and salvation. 
which means knowing our Bibles. Like he knew the Sermon on the Mount, and we needed to know the Scriptures so that we have a ready Scripture, not just for our own self, but for others. So when you're reading the Bible in the morning, maybe you're not just reading for yourself, but for someone else, and maybe you don't even know who yet. Getting to know the Scriptures is, a, is for the sake of the whole church. Uh, we go with a clear sense of the goal, with the word of truth, with the affection of family. A dozen or more times, he's addressed his readers as brothers, as beloved brothers. And I could skip with you from one side of the book to the other. Hardly a paragraph goes by without addressing his readers as brothers or as beloved brothers. So for as harsh as he was a few moments ago, as stern, we know that it comes from love because of how he addresses them the rest of the time. And so when we go to each other, a wandering sinner, we don't go mad at them. We go with great affection for them, even if we come with a word of truth concerning their life and their station. We go with a word of truth and with the affection of family, and we go with the jealousy of a spouse, the fourth answer. The Lord, the Lord yearns jealously over us. James says, you adulterous people, not adulterous against him, but against the Lord. And so we go with that same kind of jealousy for their soul and the Lord's salvation over them. The clear sense of the goal and the word of truth on our lips and the affection of family in our heart and the jealousy of a betrayed spouse with the humility of a fellow sinner. He says we save their souls from death I take it that is to elevate the privilege that we have of going after each other. In a sense, you can be someone else's savior. We don't talk that way all the time, but James did, so it's okay. Now, God does the saving. You're going to speak, though, and be his agent, his channel by through which he saves. But we're also sinners, of course, in need of salvation ourselves. Uh, We all stumble in many ways, James says, so not many of you should claim to be teachers. And so we come as those who stumble in many ways, and we've reminded ourselves of that, and I've said as much of myself. As a preacher, I stumble in many ways. So we come to each other with the humility of a fellow sinner. We also come to one another with big warnings and even more grace. Big warnings and even more grace. If you have your finger there in chapter 4 still... Verse 6, but he gives more grace. So after that call to repent, he gives them every reason to come to God. If they think God has exhausted his grace on them, that's not true because he gives more grace. So don't say God doesn't have enough grace for you and your sins and the things you've done. Oh, he has enough grace for all of your sins. Not so that you can go on sinning, and prove that you're not a believer, but so that you can come back to him in repentance. He gives more grace. Verse 8, therefore it says, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Here's what humility looks like. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you're saying the right words and you've learned the sins you've committed because others have said them to you, and there's not a feeling in your heart of, of remorse, Peter is saying, you humble yourself. You go home after church today and you say, God, I confess. I know what the sins are. I feel nothing about them. And that ought to scare you and say, God, scare me with this truth. Pray and plead with God for the grace to humble yourself and ask for grace. If you even have to start there, start there. Are you months and months and months in to confessing the same old thing that you keep returning to? I'm sorry, but that's not this. And it's why James says, humble yourselves, and why he goes on, be wretched and mourn and weep. There is a time for that, friend. And friends, we are looking for that in a sinner that returns home who has been wandering. And wanderer, know that your brothers and sisters would rejoice in your honest and frank and even embarrassing confession matched with tears. We go with big warnings and even bigger grace. And seventh, we go with open arms to receive and to restore. We're seeking their restoration to the Lord and to the people whom they've offended and left. In the context of this church, the great sins he addresses, and there are others we haven't talked about, but the great sins he addresses are those great sins of biting and devouring one another. And in these last verses, before we got to this morning's passage, he speaks concerning the reconciliation of members to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And if you get called up to come to someone's side because they have something to say to you about themselves and their sin against the Lord and maybe against you in their church, then we go with open arms ready to receive, ever ready for reconciliation. This is the miracle of God when it happens. It is the grace of God at work in their hearts. And it's just as Peter painstakingly wrote this letter to seek our spiritual restoration with the Lord and with one another, so we are eager for any sinner to turn. It might be your spouse that you need to be eager to see turn. It might be a close family member. It might be a close friend and member in this church. You may kind of like how they've sinned against you. And maybe it's because you've sinned against them. And that gives you a way of accusing them in your heart. There is no place for that. You need to repent of that. And all of us and all of this journey, whether we're safe at home with the Lord and each other, or whether, or whether we're headed out to bring a sinner back, and if you're wandering, if you're wandering, all of us can look to the Lord with the knowledge that he stands ready to receive us and ready to reconcile and ready to give grace to the humble and when you wonder about the sins you've committed and if they're just too much, remember these words at the end of the book of James. The words that he holds out right at the middle of his letter. But he gives more grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we...
pray to you is the God who gives more grace. You have plenty of mercy for us and you have plenty of room in your heart for us and it is possible for you to receive us because you have sent your son to die for our sins. And where we find ourselves alive to this truth and contrite of our sin and desirous for reconciliation, we confess that that's because the implanted word is at work within us and we have been brought forth by your word of truth. Father, help us to be a church that humbles ourselves and with meekness receives this word of truth. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.